It's always awesome when uh, we get the opportunity to have uh, global partners that our church supports, and uh, today is, is that opportunity. Some of you have already heard Corey O'Grady speak down the New Life class combined with the Bridge class, and this morning we're excited to have him be our guest speaker here in our worship service. And uh, Corey O'Grady and his wife, Kaylee, uh, they're sitting right over here. Just raise your hand so they can see a little bit. And missionary partners, yeah, give it up for them. They're missionary partners of ours that we've been supporting for quite some time now over in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and he is there with Grace Church and proclaiming the gospel to the city of Amsterdam, the people of Amsterdam, and just do a wonderful job. It's not an easy place in which to uh, proclaim the gospel and to see fruit that remains, and yet they are persevering. We're uh, excited about that. We're excited to hear a report on this, and then Corey's going to be bringing the message. But before he does, we want to take time to open up the Word of God and to read from it and read the text that Corey's going to be preaching from. So I want to invite you to reach for your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles right there in front of you. And in the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 389. And we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And so will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word here in Isaiah chapter 6? And we're going to be looking at the first seven verses. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for the truth of your word, the authority of it. We thank you that we have your revelation before us and we can open it up and read it and now to hear it taught to us from Corey. Use him in a mighty way this morning as he proclaims it to us. Make our hearts ready, make our lives willing to align with your truth that we see here in the next few moments, next few minutes. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, LifeBridge. Thanks so much for having us here. It's always good to be with you and, more importantly, share what God's been doing in our lives and through our partnership in the city of Amsterdam in the country of the Netherlands. Um, I was going to start by introducing our family, but your media guys are bringing their A-game, and they already had the picture of us with all of our names up there. Um, if you see three little redheads either crawling or running around that you don't recognize, 
Those are the three O'Grady girls, uh, Lila, Eloise, and Charlotte. My wife's Kaylee's here with us as well. Um, Lila's our almost eight-year-old who loves anything space. So if you want her to talk your ear off, just mention NASA, astronauts, or anything to do with a planet. Um, we've got Eloise. Um, she loves art. She loves just being creative. So if that's your thing, Eloise is your girl. And then Charlotte's almost one, and she likes to eat. So if you've got some snacks, hook up with Charlotte. You'll be your best friend for life. Um, we're so thankful for being a global partner with you as God has sent us to a city that we love. And we've been there now for almost, or a little over, five years. And if you're not familiar with our city, um, it's a city of about a million people. Amsterdam has a little over a million people in it, but less than 1% would claim to be a follower of Jesus. It's one of, if not the most international and diverse cities in the world. There was a recent uh, study done about a year and a half ago that said the UN currently recognizes 195 countries in the world right now. Out of those 195, 188 of them have at least one person as a registered resident in Amsterdam. 188 out of the world's 195 countries currently has a registered resident living in Amsterdam in a city of one million people. When we walk through our city, it's not an exaggeration to say the world passes us on the sidewalk. God has brought the nations into our city, and we're so thankful for that. About a year and a half ago, we started uh, meeting with a group of people. If you were in the Sunday school hour just a few minutes ago, we showed you a picture of us meeting in a living room with just a handful of people. There were six or seven people in the photo. And we said, God, would you grow a church in the city of Amsterdam? said, we want to see a church started and planted, and this was our mission, and it still is our mission, that we would be a gospel-shaped church, a gospel-shaped community that leads people to follow Jesus in all of life. That everything we do is shaped by the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, and that we aren't just about following him on Sunday mornings or in a small group gathering or at certain designated times on a calendar, but that we follow him every moment of every day. We follow him in all of life. We said, God, would you take our group and would you grow us? Would you grow what we began calling Grace Church Amsterdam? About 18 months later now, we have 40-something people that meet with us on a Sunday morning, a group that represents 15 different nationalities from five different continents. The story that God is writing through our church is an incredible one, one that we can only point to him as the reason for it happening. And I don't have time this morning to share all of our story with you, but just quickly, I've got a one-minute video so you can kind of see some faces and some people that are in our church and hear just briefly what our story has looked like. Often people will ask us, so what's your, what's your strategy been? Like, what was, your, what was your master plan when you started Grace Church? You know, Europe is uh, traditionally a very hard area um, where Christianity is on the decline, like it is in a lot of parts of the Western world. Um, so they ask, what, what's going on? How, how has this church grown up where there's 15 countries represented and 40 people? And, and here's what our, our strategy is, okay? It's really, really, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. So you might want to write this down, okay? You ready? Our strategy is this, open the Bible, 
lovingly and honestly tell people what it says about Jesus and trust God to do the rest. That's seriously our strategy. Open the Bible, tell people honestly and lovingly what it says about Jesus and trust God to do the rest. You say, Corey, that, that can't be it. That can't be the foundation of what you're doing and how Grace Church is, has grown and how God's worked through it. I want you to think about, there's a few categories in our culture today that are the ones that when you say this type of category or group of people, that's when you usually think Christianity is not growing, but it's shrinking with these different people groups or um, types of groups in our culture. One is the generation of those that are currently in their 20s to 30s. If you look around in a lot of churches today, that's a demographic that tends to be on the downward slope as opposed to the upward slope. And yet, at Grace Church, that's about half of the people that go to our church every week are those that are in their 20s and 30s. If you think about Western culture, Europe is seen typically as an area where Christianity is all but dead. Less than 1% of people would claim to be Christian in Amsterdam. And yet, a few months ago on Easter, we had a young woman who was from Finland. She's like 25 years old. And she came and she was there for our Easter service. And afterwards, she was talking to somebody else from our Grace Church family. And she was almost in tears. And she said, I've been looking for a year for a church that would just open the Bible and help me understand what it said. She wasn't looking for even a specific denomination or this high-level doctrinal criteria. Her criteria was, can somebody please open the Bible, read it, and help me understand what it says? This is a millennial European who's saying, I just was trying to find something like this. And then the third demographic that tends to be on the decline when it comes to Christianity, let's just be honest, with guys. Millennial European guys, men. If there was a, a people group or a demographic that you would say, that's shrinking or is all but dead when it comes to Christianity. That's typically the one that would be talked about. And yet, here's what I absolutely love. This is by God's grace. This is because his word is at work and his spirit is at work in people's lives. This morning when our church had service, which was at about 4 a.m. Kansas City time, the three people that were most responsible for everything that happened this morning at our Sunday gathering were a 29-year-old single Dutch guy, a 28-year-old single Scottish guy, and a 21-year-old single Dutch guy. What was our strategy? How did, how, did, how did those guys end up being so invested in wanting to pour in other people and help lead others to follow Jesus in all of life? Nothing to do with us. Our strategy was open the Bible, tell people lovingly and honestly what it says about Jesus, and then trust God to do what God does. See, I'm really bad at convincing people to follow Jesus and believe that God is who he says he is. God's really good at convincing people. My job is simply to open his word, tell them what God has said, how good he is, and the redemption that's available in Jesus, and then watch, do, watch God do what only God can do. That's the only explanation for a bunch of millennial European guys being a part of Grace Church. That's the only reason, by the way, that anyone is a part of any church is because God was at work in their life when they heard the truth of who Jesus is from God's word. So we don't have any silver bullet magic potion strategy. We don't need one. You don't either. The gospel of Jesus is really that good. Jesus really is that good. 
In fact, he is so distinct and set apart and different from any other religion or worldview or perspective if we will just open God's word and honestly see what it says about him. We were thinking about this as a church, as Grace Church, and we had a series called Distinct. In fact, uh, they finished it up this morning while we were here. We were looking at different um, characteristics of God, of who he is. And as we were going through them, we were just seeing more and more and more how distinct and different God is. Psalms talks about, there's this poem, this song there in the Psalms where it says, who is like our gods? Who among the gods is like our God? And the answer is no one. Nobody else is like our God. He is distinct and different from all others. When you think about that, God making that claim that he is distinct and different, that's actually a really bold claim. Think about in a marketing sense in the business world, if a company says, here's our product, it is distinct and better than anything else on the market. That's pretty bold. In fact, what that invites is challengers. That invites another company to say, no, it's not. Ours is way better, and it's cheaper. Come buy our product. Yours isn't distinct. Ours is distinct. It invites challengers when you make a bold claim like that. And yet God says, who is like me? Nobody. But then he also says this, come and see. Come and see. Open my word and look, and I'll show you. I'll tell you. There is nobody like me. There is no one like our God. He is distinct above all others. As we walk through these attributes of God with our, our Grace Church family, we started with one that I want to share with you this morning, and that's the holiness of God. God being holy. Maybe you're familiar with this word. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've heard it a lot in church, but never really stopped and paused to think about what holiness actually is. So I want to just think about this word for a second, and then we're going to go to our text in Isaiah and unpack that this morning. I want to first think about the idea of God's surpassing holiness. And here's what I mean by this. When we think about God's attributes, things like his love, his grace, his justice, his wrath, his holiness, his attributes, what makes God God, God's holiness is uniquely emphasized in his story in Scripture. Bible repeatedly talks about people and places and things that God calls holy. In fact, there are angelic beings right now that their job in heaven is to declare that God is holy, holy, holy. We're going to get to that because we see it in our passage as well. But that's their job. It's just to constantly declare the perfect holiness of God. Of the many attributes used to describe God, holiness is the most prominent one. It doesn't mean it's better. It just means it's described and presented in a different way, really, than any of, other, of God's other attributes. Number two, I want us to think about this before we get to our passage, is God's exalted status in his holiness. Here's what holiness means. We can use the word, but let's define it real quick before we jump into our passage. To say that God is holy is to say that he is separate from all other creation. The Hebrew word translated for holy primarily indicates that God is distinct and different. He is not the same as all of the other creation. God is high and lifted up and different completely from you and I. Here's what that means. God is not an improved or even perfected version of a human being. 
He's something totally higher and completely different than who you and I are. We live in a world and a culture of updates and upgrades and additions. I've got an update waiting on my phone that I need to do. I haven't done it yet. And I'm, I need to get that update done because I know my phone will run better if I do that update that's sitting there waiting for me. Constantly, we update, we upgrade, we replace. What's the new edition? 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. You know what it is? It's a better version of the thing you started with. God is not just an upgraded version of you and I. He is something distinct and different and set apart. That foundationally is what holiness means. He's different. But then, number three, we want to look at God's moral perfection. Maybe this is the idea that you often would get about what holiness is. God is completely without sin. He's never done anything wrong. God has always and will always do what is good and right and perfect. All of God's decisions and judgments, perfect. They always have been and they always will be. God takes delight in all that is true and worthy. And because of God's very nature of being holy, he is pure and cannot tolerate anything that is sinful or wicked or evil. And that's a good thing. That's such good news that our God loves goodness and righteousness and hates evil things. You wouldn't want a God that didn't hate evil. It's part of one of his other characteristics of him being good. He's good because he's holy. All of his attributes are always interconnected. But part of God's holiness is that he loves and celebrates and uplifts righteousness and purity but he can't even be in the presence of things that are wicked and sinful and evil. Now, on that note, I want us to go to our text from Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you look back there, we already read it. Pastor Bruce came up and read it just a few moments ago. The book of Isaiah is named after the prophet Isaiah. In the Old Testament, there was an office of prophet, which was a person that God would designate to be, if you will, his mouthpiece to his people. God would speak to the prophet. The prophet would speak authoritatively on behalf of God to his people in the Old Testament. And here's the prophet Isaiah. And in verses 1 through 7, he has this dream. He has this vision. And he says that this happens, as this is happening, number one, it happens as the holiness of God is observed in this vision or dream. And as he's having this vision, it's in the year that it says King Uzziah died, which might sound a little odd. Like, why are they throwing in this little uh, trivia fact about who just died when Isaiah is having this vision? But it's important for this reason. Uzziah was a king who had rejected who God was and actually mocked God for his holiness. He was the opposite of what it was to be holy and even mocked God for being good, right, and perfect. It says that king Uzziah had just died. And then there in this vision it says that Isaiah sees the Lord and he's on his throne, high and lifted up. God is in his rightful place, positioned as the one who is the ruler of the universe. He's separate from everything else because he's holy. He's high and lifted up, not where Isaiah is, but above him, separate from him, holy. But then we get to this part of the vision that honestly sounds a little strange. It says there's these seraphim that are surrounding um, the presence of God there and his holiness. 
And if you don't know what a seraphim is, it's a type of angel. And the literal meaning of seraphim is fire. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with having these, but maybe you've seen the little, like, precious moments angel figures. Maybe some of you have them. And you, you look at those and you go, oh, they're so cute. These are not those angels. <laughs> these are the fire angels. These are the angels that says they have these huge sets of wings. In fact, I think it's interesting in Scripture that whenever an angel shows up or is seen in a vision or dream, no one ever goes, oh, they're cute. Normally what they do is they fall flat on their face because they're terrified. Here's why I'm telling you this. Here are these angels, these beings of fire, and they're flying around declaring God's holiness, saying he is holy, holy, holy. But as they do this, these angelic beings who in and of themselves are pure, they've done nothing wrong, these powerful beings of fire, it says that they're covering themselves with their wings in this act of humble, reverent worship. These beings that you and I would be terrified of if one showed up in the room right now, in the presence of God's holiness, all they can do as they declare how holy he is, is cover themselves. It's hard for me to even begin to wrap my mind around that idea. That being so powerful that they would terrify me to the point of laying flat on my face if they showed up. All they can do in this moment, in this vision, is humbly cover themselves in feeling unworthy of being in the presence of this holy God as they declare that he is holy, holy, holy. The angels there just continually repeat this phrase. And the fact that they say it three times is this demonstration of God's holiness is perfect. When things are used in three in Scripture, often it's this idea of there being perfection involved in it. God's holiness in his being separate and distinct, as moral purity, there's not even a little bit of him that's not holy. He is always holy. He always has been, and he always will be. Now what's interesting here is the rest of that phrase. If you look back there, we tend to focus when we read this passage on the phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we should. That makes sense. But often we skip the very next line when it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. This word glory here carries with it the idea of God's presence being with a group of people. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory here is used throughout the Old Testament of God's presence being with his people. It was used when uh, God described himself as being with them in the cloud and the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness said his glory was with them. His presence was with them. It wasn't just he's a God that is worthy of worship, but his presence is close to his people. That's what this means. And it says that his glory fills the earth. Here's what that means. This God who is holy, 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 who is not an upgrade on you and I, but something totally different, who is so morally pure. He has never done anything wrong. So holy that these beings of fire can do nothing but declare his holiness and then cover themselves as they do it. Says that God, his presence is everywhere. His glory, his holy presence fills the earth. There's no place in this world where you can go that our holy God is not there. 
is everywhere. Which for some of you might sound very encouraging. For others of you might sound terrifying. And that's okay. That's the response that should be initiated from us when we think about the fact that our holy, holy, holy God is everywhere. You can't escape him. And that's either a comfort or a fear. And we're going to get to that more in just a few minutes. The second thing I want us to look at in this passage is the holiness of God in humanity. So we've kind of tried to get this picture in our mind, this vision that Isaiah has, the angels of fire flying around declaring how holy God is as they cover themselves with their wings. And Isaiah sees this. And his first line of response is this. Woe is me. Woe is me. Isaiah knows who he is in light of who he sees God to be. Isaiah knows that he's in trouble. That he's not worthy to be in presence of this holy God because he knows he's not holy like that. He's not different and distinct like that God is. He's not morally pure like that God is, even as the prophet. And when he sees the holiness of God, he says, woe is me. And then he says, I am undone. Some translations would say, I am lost or all is lost. I am undone. I am at loss. Isaiah believes that this is what his future will hold as he stands in the presence of this holy God, that I am being undone from the inside out, and it appears that my future is loss. You think about if you owned a building or a home and God forbid a fire broke out and it damaged and ruined everything in that structure to where it couldn't be recovered. It was, it was gone. We'd say that that building was a total loss. It can't be recovered. That house or building is completely undone. That's what Isaiah sees as his future as he stands before this God that is holy, holy, holy. Woe is me. I am undone. My future appears to be total and complete loss. Why? Why does he think this? He tells us. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. The angels have been saying God is holy, holy, holy. He's pure and clean. There's nothing um, unclean or wicked or evil about him. But Isaiah says, that's not me. I see who God is and that's not me. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. It wasn't that he was saying, physically, I've got some issue with my lips. You need to get that taken care of. That's not what he's saying. I need to go wash my mouth, and then I'll be good. He's saying, as the prophet, my lips are what I use to be who God has called me to be, and yet this is kind of a representation of who I am, and who I am is unclean. I'm not like that God. Who I am is not that. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he goes on to say, and I dwell and live with a people of unclean lips. He recognizes this isn't just my problem. We've all got this problem. We're not holy, holy, holy. God is, but Isaiah's not. And neither are the people that he lives with. And in and of ourselves, neither am I and neither are you. In and of ourselves, we are not holy, 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 pure as God would have us to be. We're just not. 
We don't always do what is good and right and perfect. And that would mean this, that the future for everyone, unless someone or something else intervenes, would be, woe is us, we're all undone, loss is coming. That's Isaiah's story, but that's the story for all of mankind. That's, that was my story, that was the beginning of your story, that may be your story today, right now. That before God intervenes and does something, we see who God is, that he is holy, holy, holy. And when we truly see that and believe it, it has become so obvious that we are not. And how unworthy we are to be in his presence. And we realize what we're worthy of is being undone and loss. Thankfully, that's not where the story ends. For many of you today, I hope that's not where your story ends. If you're sitting here and thinking, I feel like Isaiah right now. Like, Corey, you're talking about this God who is holy, 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 who always does all the time what is good and right and perfect. And you're sitting there going, I know that's not me. Corey, is the end of my story, I'm to be undone. Is the end of my story, loss? My answer is it doesn't have to be. It wasn't the end of Isaiah's story doesn't have to be the end of your story. Because number three, we see the holiness of God and redemption. God provides a solution for Isaiah. He's sitting there saying, I am undone, all is lost. And then one of these angels does something that seems a little strange. He takes a coal from this altar. Now, in the Old Testament, God had this system in place by which people who were not good, right, and perfect who were sinful, like you and I are, could still have relationship with him and be in his presence. He said, there's something that needs to happen in order for you to be made clean. Because I'm holy, to be in my presence, you can't be covered in things that are unholy. You can't have a life that is unholy. So what are we to do? Well, God says, you are worthy of punishment because of your sin and being unclean, but I'll make a way that your punishment can be put on something else instead of you. He said, you can build this thing called an altar, and on this altar, you can sacrifice an animal. This animal hasn't done anything wrong. It's this sheep, this lamb, or this goat. It's done nothing wrong. It's this innocent animal. God says, but I will transfer the punishment that should have been yours onto this sacrifice, on this animal, and when this animal dies, this death, it will take away the punishment for sin that should have been yours. But God says, but you have to keep doing this. You have to keep offering sacrifices on the altar. If you want to be able to come into my holy presence, sacrifice is needed. That's what can change your story, people of the Old Testament, is this sacrificial system that can take away the punishment that you're due because you're not holy. And then once the sacrifice is done, then you can be in my presence again. So here comes this angel, and he takes this coal, because they would make the sacrifice, and they would burn it with fire. And the angel takes this coal from the altar, and he brings it to Isaiah, and it says, he touches his lips. This part of the sacrifice, the thing that connected with Isaiah, was God saying, because of what happened on the altar... Because of the sacrifice made, 
I'm reminding you that I can make you clean. That when what happens on the altar connects with your life, Isaiah, because of what I have declared to be redemptive and bring restoration to you on the altar, when that happens, when that connects with your story, Isaiah, then you can be made clean. You can be in my presence, even though I'm holy, 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 and you're not. The altar and the sacrifice changes everything. And the coal from the altar was the reminder of God to Isaiah that this is what makes you clean. This is what transforms you. This is what changes you. Thankfully, God provides a solution for us. It looks a little bit different. It's not repeated sacrifices on an altar. It's not repeated sacrifices of an animal. It was one sacrifice of God's perfect son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life. The animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, they'd done nothing wrong. Jesus was the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice who had done no wrong. Always, every day, every moment, in his actions, in his thoughts, in his motives, in everything, he was good and right and perfect. And God says, this can be the acceptable sacrifice once and for all. Not over and over. Once. So Jesus Christ goes to the cross not because he deserved a death, not because he deserved punishment, because God said, for all those who believe, I place their sin on this perfect, holy, spotless son of mine. And he will be their sacrifice. He will be the sacrifice on the altar of the cross. He will die the death that should have been yours and mine. So that you and I who are not holy, holy, holy can have a relationship with the God who is. Jesus is the sacrifice that we need. He's the sacrifice that was required. And when our story connects with the sacrifice of Jesus, the same way that Isaiah was connected with this coal from the altar, I want us to read verse 7. It says, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This can be your story today. I hope it's your story already that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the altar of the cross once and for all can take away the shame and guilt that we have because we're not good, right, and perfect. I can't even imagine the guilt and shame that Isaiah had as he was in God's presence and seeing this vision and knowing how opposite he was of God, how unworthy he was compared to God's perfection, how sinful and unclean and wicked he was, the shame and guilt that he felt. God says, through the sacrifice that I will provide, it can be taken away. If you're here today and you feel shame and guilt over sin in your life, things you know are not good, right, and perfect, you know what that shame and guilt is there for? To point you to Jesus, the one who takes the shame and guilt away. God isn't allowing that into your life to keep you there, but to point you to the one, the only one, the only sacrifice that once and for all can remove your shame and guilt over sin but not just remove the shame and guilt, 
says your sin is atoned for. It's paid for. And that's different. That's different than just your shame and guilt being taken away, which is incredible. But then it says your sin is atoned for in that we are worthy of loss. We are worthy of physical and spiritual death because we are holy, or sorry, God is holy and we are not. Because God is holy and perfect and we have violated his law and so therefore because of that, we're worthy of being punished. When people do wrong things in our culture, we say they're worthy of a punishment. That just makes sense. When you do wrong things, when you break laws, there are consequences. And God says, I'm holy and good and right and perfect and here's my holy law. And we all know that none of us keep it perfectly. I doubt anyone in this room would say, I'm good, right, and perfect all the time. That's nobody. God says, then you're worthy of a consequence, which is physical and spiritual death. But he says, but in Jesus, your sin is atoned for. He will take the death that should have been yours, and you get the life that's his. That's the best deal you're ever going to get. Jesus takes your death and the consequences for your sin, and you get to put on his righteousness and his life for now and eternally. That's the great exchange, and it is the best deal you will ever see in your entire life. And it's all about Jesus. It's not about me and what I can do or you and what you can do to make yourself better or more worthy or more holy because we can't do it. It's all about what happened on the altar of the cross. Jesus and his death and three days later, his resurrection, taking away our guilt and shame and atoning for our sin. That was Isaiah's story in this passage, and I pray that that is your story today through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want us to think about just three concluding thoughts as we wrap up for this morning. Just based on what we've seen in this text, what are some kind of takeaways as we walk out the door today? Number one is this. Knowing who God is will always precede us knowing who we are. Isaiah saw and understood the holiness of God, and then it became unavoidably obvious that he was not holy like this God that he was looking at. I'm going to speak to Christians for a second right now. If we want people who aren't yet followers of Jesus to see that they are sinful and need to be rescued and restored by him, you know where that starts? By helping them see exactly who God is. How holy he is, how perfect he is, how good he is, how loving he is, how righteous he is, all the time. Because when they see that, it becomes unavoidably obvious that you and I are not like that. It doesn't start by saying, hey, you know that you're doing this thing and that violates God's law. You know that that's, that's sinful. You know that, now, does that come at some point? Yes, it does. But where, where should we start? Hey, did you know that this is who God is in Scripture? Would you come with me and open God's Word and see who God is? Did you see how God is always pure all the time? That he always does what is good and right and perfect? Did you see how he's always loving and his thoughts and his motives and his actions, everything about him is always right all the time? Look at this God. See him with me. There's none like him. The more you look at God and see him for who he is, the more you realize you're nothing like him at all. How different would that be as we were talking with those that don't yet know Jesus if we began with, not ended with, but began with who God is 
and then allowed God to work in their heart to expose and show them that they are sinful and not holy and not like him. Because knowing who God is will always precede us knowing who we are. Christians, that applies to us as well, though. If we as Christians want to know who we are, it begins first with remembering who God is. And when we remember the holiness of God, then as Christians, we are reminded and we know that we are actually nothing special. We are simply a sinner who has been rescued and redeemed by a holy God. That means that you and I are no better than anybody that you know that doesn't yet know Jesus. We are no better than them. You're not above them. You're not better than them. You don't sit on a pedestal and look down at them. You know why you're not in the position that they are right now? Because Jesus rescued you. That has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. So let's point people to him so they can see who they are through knowing who God is. Number two, holiness is not about all of us being the same person. Holiness is about us all being changed by the same person. Here's what I mean. You say, okay, Corey, I see Isaiah's story, and God transforms Isaiah. Corey, you've talked about your own story, that you are a follower of Jesus, and God has transformed you. He's making you more and more holy as he as God is holy. So, Corey, that means that in my life, that if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I'm going to end up being exactly like you and Isaiah. We're all going to look exactly alike. You might think, that sounds really boring, and I would agree with you. Being holy is not about all of us being the same person. It's about all of us being changed by the same person. God made Isaiah different from me and different from you, different from the person you're sitting next to you in your seat. We are different people that he is uniquely created and gifted to be passionate and good at a myriad of different things. We are not all the same. I've got three kids and they're all different from each other. They're not exactly the same. And God's goal for my family, for my kids, for you, for your family, is not to make all of us clones of each other. It's for all of us to be changed by this holy God so that we can, in a holy way that honors and glorifies God, be exactly who he created us to be. And that means you won't look exactly like me, and that's good. I don't care about you being or acting like me. I don't want you to be a clone of me. What I want you to do is be changed by the same God that's changing me. It's not, holiness is not being about it's not about all of us being the same person. It's about all of us being changed by the same person. Lastly, God's holiness without his redemption is hopeless. His redemption without his holiness is pointless. Here's what I mean as you walk out, if you think about this for your own life, as you share these truths, hopefully, with those that are around you. God is good and right and perfect. And you and I are not. If that's the end of the story, that's a hopeless story for us. If it's God's holy, you're not the end. Well, now what? I'm stuck at, I'm undone and at loss, like Isaiah was initially. Which tells me and tells you this. As we are sharing who God is with other people, and we share how holy he is, and how good, right, and perfect he is, which leads us to know that we are not, 
don't forget to include the redemption that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. You say, Corey, well, of course we do that. Of course we talk about that. Maybe you do, and I hope you do. But unfortunately, the presupposition about Christianity, both in Europe and generally in America, is that Christians are all about, you do this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong, and I don't. I've got it all together, you don't. You should come be like me. I do the things on the good list, and you don't. I avoid the bad list, and you do all those things. If that's the idea of Christianity that people have, we need to do a better job of not only talking about God's holiness, but his redemption. Because that's not a hopeless story. That's a good story. But on the other side of things, God's redemption without his holiness is pointless. Here's what I mean by that. If we would say, God wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to restore you. He wants to redeem you. That's all true. But from what and why? Why? If we never begin with, God is holy, 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 he's good, right, and perfect, for us to then realize, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of God's word, that we're not, then what do I have to be saved from? Why do I need to be changed? You say I need to be saved or rescued or restored? I think I'm doing just fine. God's redemption, without knowing about his holiness, appears to be pointless. It's a rescue for people that don't need saving. But when we have them together and we see that God is holy, 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 and we are not, but the story does not end there, but it continues into the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, that's good news. That's not hopeless. That's not pointless. That's the gospel. We talked about this in the Sunday school class earlier. That's good news. The gospel is good news for every person in this world in every part of their life. Which means talking about God's holiness and then his redemption is good news for everybody. The question is, do we actually believe that? We believe it really is good news. We believe it's a good idea. Or maybe good advice. Or no, God is holy and yet he redeems. This is good news for me and for you and for all that will hear it. It's good news for Kansas City. It's good news for Amsterdam. It's good news for all peoples. I want us to take just a couple minutes to pray and reflect here in our seats. So if you want to bow your head and close your eyes there in your seats, I'm just going to take a moment to pray for us as we wrap up the teaching portion of the service. And just think about this God who is holy, holy, holy. Consider, have you been redeemed by this God? through his son, Jesus Christ? Have you been rescued by this God through his son, Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you can be today by believing and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to be the reason that you can have relationship with this God who is good, right, and perfect. Maybe you're a Christian today and you would say, I haven't thought much about God's holiness lately, but I need to as it pertains to my own life, as God is making me more holy, making me more like him. I need to remember the gospel, remember my redemption that I need daily. I need to remember it as I share it with other people that his holiness is actually good news to be shared with those around me. We pray for us, and then we're going to worship more through just prayer and singing as we conclude this morning. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that this story that we see in Isaiah from several thousand years ago, in a totally different region of the world and context and culture, has truth that cuts to the heart for us today in Kansas City, Missouri.
Thank you that then you were our holy God and you are still our holy God and you will always be our holy God. Father, we worship you and we call you holy because you are worthy of that name. God, we admit right now that we are not that. We are thankful that we can still have a relationship with you, our holy God, not because we're good, but because you are good and sent your good son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf so that our shame and guilt can be taken away, so our sin can be atoned for, and we can have life and life abundant with you. Father, work through the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit in lives this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.